This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Our Lord Jesus worked miracles, but he was also a preacher. He came preaching the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. People marveled at his power and his wisdom. Our Lord himself said that his wisdom, which was reflected in his preaching, was greater than Solomon's. Luke says that Stephen's preaching was so full of the spirit and wisdom that his opponents could not resist it. In its very nature, preaching is a bold act. A man stands in the pulpit to exposit an ancient text, sometimes extemporaneously, and he does it in a late modern, highly sensitive context. Here to help us think about the relationship of wisdom to preaching is Dr. Julius Kim, Associate Professor of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. Hi, Julius, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me. You have a challenging assignment in this episode to try to connect two difficult topics, but that's your job. You're a prof of practical theology. So let's get a couple of definitions out of the way. What is your working definition of wisdom? Yeah, before I get there, I think it needs to be said, and I think it's been said in some of the other podcasts, that wisdom itself is a very difficult word to define. Uh, The Bible itself uh, uses wisdom in a variety of different ways, and I suppose when we think about wisdom, it encompasses uh, different parts of even who we are as humans, whether it's a purely uh, rational thing that we do in our minds, but is it, or is it uh, something of conviction and values in our hearts, or is it, or is it part of the way we live? I think actually wisdom encompasses all three. Uh, wisdom is, for me, understanding, feeling, acting, and living out God's truth in ways that are true, good, and beautiful. Uh, That's a mouthful, I recognize that, but it's my attempt at trying to balance all the different variables involved in wisdom, whether it's the head, the heart, or the hands, but it's essentially uh, wisdom is the knowledge and the application of God's truth, His goodness, and His beauty in our minds, in our convictions, but also in our lives and our speech. Okay, what then is preaching? Uh, Preaching is the, the proclamation of God's word, primarily the proclamation of his good word or his good news. That is the person and work of Jesus as the only one who can save us from our sin. And so preaching is that proclamatory act wherein God's ordained servant, who has been tested and approved by the church, proclaims the good news that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life from every portion of Scripture. How do you, in your definition, account for the law of God Mm -hmm. in preaching? Well, obviously, the good news presupposes bad news. The fact that Jesus came to save us uh, presupposes that he's saving us from something. And the Bible is very clear in that God has certain standards of holiness, of perfection, that is aligned with his own nature and character. And for him to be united to his people through his son, the people need to be perfect. But unfortunately, we know very clearly, not only from the scriptures, but from our own lives, that none of us can fully live up to the perfect law of God because we're sinful. We're sinful in our very core. Calvin calls that total depravity. And so as a result, the Bible tells us that we are more sinful than we can ever even imagine, and yet we're actually more loved through the gospel than we can ever dare hope. And so preaching is this proclamatory, this announcement, this proclamation of good news of salvation from sin and the law. And so that's what we're trying to do every Sunday when we get up to the pulpit, to bring the law and the gospel to bear upon God's people. So their only hope is in Jesus and not in themselves. 
And then as a consequence, they want to live in a way that's pleasing to God, not in order to be justified, but because they have been justified. Absolutely. Because of gratitude and love and joy, they're so overwhelmed by the merciful act of God in saving them from their sin and eternal damnation. And through the imputed righteousness that is now theirs by virtue of their faith in Christ alone, they are now new creatures. And new creatures filled with gratitude and love for the Lord, they now have better motivation to live out the law, what we would call the third use of the law. And so what better motivation is there? than grace, the grace of God, that now leads us to gratitude to live out our holiness and goodness and righteousness as we try to image Christ in what we do and say. So we have a sense of what preaching is, Mm -hmm. and we have a sense of what wisdom is. Mm -hmm. Both of these are complex definitions, right? Just as we were trying to define these things, we were finding multiple aspects that we're including under these phrases. So these are not simple things. And now we have the situation, as I said in the introduction, where a man is standing up in front of a group of people who are there for a variety of reasons, some of whom may not believe, many of whom may make a profession of faith in Christ, some of whom are paying attention, some of whom are not. So it's a, it's in the nature of things, a diverse gathering, maybe culturally diverse. And in the midst of this, he's, we trust, holding the Word of God in one hand and faithfully expounding the riches of Scripture to this congregation. That very act, it seems to me, in the nature of it, requires wisdom. Help us begin to flesh that out. Yeah, I think you're touching on perhaps one of the most difficult things that preachers do today, which is to take this ancient message through modern means, that is through our words and language, to really postmodern people, to people who are not used to the idea that actually words, these ancient words through the Spirit, have life. That when the word is proclaimed faithfully, when the gospel is proclaimed, that gospel actually can take dead hearts and make them alive. And that's why we go up to the pulpit every Sunday, because we believe that. And if we don't, then our faith is in vain. Yeah, our whole confidence in getting into the pulpit is that God's going to use what Paul calls foolishness to accomplish something. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And we have another barrier or challenge, and that is, in our culture, increasingly, People do not assume that there is any necessary relation between the sign, that is the word that's being preached, and what is actually true. In other words, they tend to increasingly assume that the relationship between signs and the thing signified, the truth, is arbitrary and that people are just making up things. And so everybody now is operating with what used to be called a hermeneutic of suspicion. So how does a wise preacher address all of these people at the same time with all of these questions, many of whom are operating, even if they don't know it, with the hermeneutic of suspicion. Yeah. You mean besides coming to Westminster and getting an MDiv here? (laughs) Well, Uh. that's a great start. I mean, seriously, because we are thinking about this and talking about it and taking the Word of God seriously. I I mean that seriously, too, because preaching brings together so many disparate disciplines. I mean, you have to know the Word well. I mean, the Word itself given to us in the original languages in the Greek and Hebrew were given in these languages in special times and places, and we need to know that so that we can accurately and, and... and with, with faithfulness and integrity, preach that word as it was not only originally given by the original author to his original audience, but also as it was given through the Holy Spirit by the power of God. So there's these two, if I can use this language, there are really two authors at work here. There's a human author 
speaking to a human audience and the needs and the, and the occasion in that time, whether it be Moses in the Old Testament or the Apostle Paul in the New. But you also have this overarching divine author through the Holy Spirit helping these authors speak the gospel, the timeless gospel, in time, space, and history. And so as good interpreters, we have to, frankly, we have to go to seminary and learn the languages, to learn the, the Bible better. We have to learn theology, systematic theology, and to see how all these categories work together of systematics. And we have to learn the history of the church to make sure that our interpretation is in line with the Orthodox tradition. And then we need to learn how to bring it all together wisely. What does that look like? Well, let me attempt some initial thoughts as I've been thinking about this. And I've been thinking about this a lot because my book is hopefully coming out this fall on preaching. Okay, Tell us about the book. Yeah, the book is essentially a first-year seminarian textbook for preaching. It's called Preaching the Whole Counsel of God. And it's going to be available when it's published <laughs> through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, so, California. Yeah. What, what's the title again? It's called Preaching the Whole Counsel of God. All right, and we'll talk about that volume in detail when it comes out. And you're hoping it will be available when? Uh, Lord willing, uh, Zondervan hopes to have it out this fall, by October or November. In fact, it's already on pre-sale on Amazon. All right, so you can go to Amazon now and order the book by Julius Kim, the title of which is? Preaching the Whole Counsel of God, The Design and Delivery of Gospel-Centered Sermons. There you go. And in this book, I try to, how should I say this, go from soup to nuts, so to speak. And so you're a first-year seminary student or maybe a pastor right now that needs a refresher on the design and delivery of gospel-centered sermons. And so the whole book walks through kind of the main steps of not only interpretation, that is the hermeneutics of the text, but also then the communication of the text, the homiletics of the sermon. And so the book is divided into four parts, of which we can talk about at another time. But as I've been thinking about how to help students, first-year seminary students, uh, I've discovered that it's not just a science of knowledge. It's not just a body of knowledge that I can look at and say, okay, do this step, one, two, three, four, five, six, and now you got a sermon. It's actually much more complicated and complex. And this is where I've discovered that preaching requires wisdom as well as just knowledge. Namely, they not only need to learn the science of preaching, of interpretation and design and delivery, but also the art of preaching, which includes how the text influences me as a preacher, but also in light of the unique audience that's before me, the unique sheep of God that God has placed in my care, in my pastoral ministry. They're going to have unique problems, questions, concerns, complaints, perhaps all of the above every Sunday. And they're going to be at different ages, educational levels, spiritual ages, spiritual educational levels. And somehow I've got to take this timeless truth from the scripture and bring it to bear upon these lives. And that's a very difficult subject. I'm not trying to skirt the end of the question here. Wisdom then really is operative all through the process. For example, I am preaching this Lord's Day, and in order to do that, because I'm not in the same pulpit week after week, I have to pick a text. It's more difficult. If you're in a congregation week after week after week, you can pick a book, and then you begin preaching through that book. And so that narrows down your choice. Now you're picking which passage you're going to preach. But in whatever circumstance one finds himself, the minister does have to be wise in selecting a text. And the minister has to be wise in interpreting the text and applying the text to his congregation. And in the absence of wisdom, terrible things can result. Absolutely. Take, for example, the first idea that you brought up, namely trying to discern which text to even preach. A lot of my students ask, you know, how do you decide as a preacher what to preach every Sunday? Do I just open up the Bible and say, Lord, is this it this Sunday? And I just, you know, like trying to pick your life verse 
or what's my verse for today? Clearly, there's got to be more than that. So it's not random. And that would not be, at all. That would not be wise. Not to at just all. Randomly select wherever my finger falls. This is going to be my text. Think, for example, the analogy of how we feed our children as they're growing up in age. You don't wander through the kitchen, right? No. <laughs> nor, but you also have to take into consideration their age. For example, when they're young, even the Apostle Paul says that in Peter, he talks about when you were young, you were fed milk. But as you grow old, you eat meat because your body requires different things to grow. Similarly, as a pastor, you're in, a, in many ways a spiritual father and mother to your congregation. So you have to wisely discern, what do my people need at this stage in their life? How can I best nourish and nurture their soul so that it would grow and mature in more Christ-likeness? And so you have to carefully think about, based on the whole Bible, that's a big book, what do I need to do over not only this next Sunday, yeah. but over the next month? over the next year, over the next five years, over the next 10 years, where do I want my people to be in that kind of time period? And then in light of that, work backwards. If I want my child to be healthy and strong by the time she leaves for college at 18, what do I need to do to train her, feed her, grow her so that she's ready to go as an adult? Similarly, as pastors, I think we need to spiritually then discern, if I want my people to be at this stage, at this part of their life, let's say 10 years from now, what do they need of the Bible? What do they need of theology? What do they need of practical Christian ethics, for example? And then start training them. And preaching is one of the primary, not the only, but clearly the primary way in which we as spiritual fathers and mothers, so to speak, using that language, feed and nourish and nurture our people. So even choosing the text to preach requires a lot of prayer. Because let's face it, when we lack wisdom, God says, You don't have a lot of wisdom, but he's given us this tool of prayer to say, pray for wisdom and I will give it to you. So we pray, Lord, what do my people need? We discern with our elders. Elders are also different members of the church that know the spiritual condition of the people. We can't know everybody all the time, everywhere. So the elders are there who are shepherding God's people. So we ask them, let's pray together as a group of elders, whether it's a session or a consistory. And together, let's determine over the next year, what should my preaching course be or my series be? Should I preach through a whole book, which is usually a good way to go, but that is called Lectio Continua is through the book. You just preach whatever the Bible gives you. So you don't ride your hobby horses. You don't choose what you want to or not want to talk about. This is God's word for his people. So you just preach through the whole book or a whole section of the book. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, we need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. And so there's real wisdom in, for example, abandoning the old medieval practice of reading this gospel passage for this week. In other words, the listener may or may not know that prior to the Reformation, people did not typically just open up a book of the Bible and begin preaching through it from beginning to end. But that's really something that comes to the fore in the Reformation. And so we may take that for granted. Well, of course, that's what a preacher does. But that wasn't always 
what was done, even in the patristic church, although it was done some, less in the medieval church, and then it was recovered in the Reformation. And now today, even, I get the sense that not everybody is committed to this business of starting at one end of a book and going through to the end. Absolutely. And this is where the Reformation has been so helpful in giving us this pattern of what to preach. And so that's what I try to recommend to my students. But those are wisdom principles. These are not hard and fast, black and white, you must do this. Well, it's not like the Bible says. No. This is the only way. That's right. If you look at the sermons, at least summarized for us, in the book of Acts, we don't get a clear picture of Lectio Continua preaching. And that's right. That's right. And the book of Acts is an interesting book that provides for us some historical narrative, not normative, but historical narratives of what the early church did. And again, I think preachers like the Apostle Paul were very wise in the text they even chose, since we're on that topic of choosing texts, based even on his audience. Take, for example, the difference between what Paul does in Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13, when he's preaching to a group of Jews, God-fearers, proselytes, basically not only ethnic Jews who are going to the synagogue, but even Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. These are people who would have a pretty good background in the Old Testament, what at that time would have been the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, and to that audience in preaching the law and the gospel to them, what does he do? He carefully selects Old Testament passages that are prophecies about the Messiah, and he interprets them in light of Jesus what we call a Christocentric, biblical, theological, redemptive historical interpretation. And for those big words, you might need my book. So again, another (laughs) shameless plug for my book. I apologize. Uh, But um, so he redemptive historically interprets those Old Testament passages in light of Jesus, and then he applies it. He says, why am I telling you this about Jesus, this Messiah who has come? Because it's only through him Only by repenting of your sins and believing in his name can you have the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. He applies it to the gospel, to their hearts and lives. But then take a look at what he does in Acts 17. In Acts 17, we find Paul in a very different setting. Luke records for us there Paul's speech at the Areopagus, at Mars Hill, we call it, where he's meeting a bunch of Athenian philosophers. Now, these philosophers have no background in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. If you would say Adam, Moses, David, they would say, who? And so his approach and preaching is very different. He basically provides a kind of a narrative, a large biblical narrative, starting with creation. And he gives us kind of a natural theology of, he presupposes that there's a God who created all things that was good. He created man so that man would come out and reach out and know him. But unfortunately, man did not. Man did not reach out for him, but created idols made of wood and stone. And as a result, they were plunged into sin and sin's effects. And then, only after providing that kind of broad meta-narrative, if I can use that language, or broad kind of framework, and then he introduces Jesus. Apart from that, if he started with Jesus, they would have no clue what to do with that. So here, Paul wisely preaches in Acts 13 to his audience, knowing they know the Old Testament, uses Old Testament language, applies it, and brings it to bear upon Christ and to them. But in Acts 17, he does something very different. And that's wisdom, I think. Paul wisely preaches in a way to make sure that, one, the gospel is preached, but two, preached in ways that are comprehensible and understandable to the people to whom he's reaching. I think there's a lot we can take away from that. It's not like he wasn't trusting in the Holy Spirit, even as he was making these choices. 
So both things are true simultaneously, right? It's not like, well, I'm going to trust in the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to stand up in front of this congregation full of English speakers and start reading the Greek Testament and expect the Holy Spirit to do his work. That's right. Just lacking discernment, not only about what he is called to do as a preacher, but also lacked discernment on the unique people that were there before him. Again, I use this analogy of parenting to be helpful here. We do that intuitively as parents. We do that intuitively in our conversations with one another. We read body language. We look at people's eyes. And when we say something to someone and we get this weird look, we immediately respond and we say, <laughs> Oops, okay, I shouldn't, that, that, yeah. I shouldn't have said that to my wife. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should have said it this way. Yeah, she's grabbing a golf club, so <laughs> clearly I, I misspoke. <laughs> Why do we not take that kind of wisdom into the pulpit? Into the yeah. pulpit? Or in the preparation of, let's say, going into the pulpit. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And so that raises a really important point. There's wisdom to be exercised even in the act of preaching. You and I know, after years and years of standing in the pulpit and expositing the text and announcing the law and the gospel to God's people, that there are times when you make a spontaneous decision to illustrate a point this way or uh, to to say that, and afterwards you think, oh my, that might not have been the wisest thing that I ever did. How do preachers gain wisdom about what to say in the moment? We've seen some somewhat notorious cases in recent years where ministers have become famous, notorious for using, shall we say, colorful sermon illustrations that may have ultimately distracted from what they were trying to communicate. Yeah, and I think the key word there is distracting. Anything that is said off the cuff, I guess we're talking here about extemporaneous things that perhaps come to mind or come to heart. Let me just say, first of all, I don't want to take away from the possibility that the Holy Spirit could impress upon our hearts and on our minds based on what we've already studied, based on our histories and experiences, ideas, stories, words that we didn't prepare, let's say, ahead of time. So I'm open to that. But the way I talk to my students is it's it's always wiser to stick with what you've thought about during the whole week. You've spent 20, 30 hours thinking and prayerfully considering how do I best communicate this to my people in light of their unique needs and concerns and questions. Now, you either trust that 20, 30 hours or do you trust that moment? More often than not, you want to trust the 20, 30 hours <laughs> Especially- of thinking. Especially when that moment may tend to distract from what you were trying to accomplish. Not to say there's nothing about spontaneity. That's right. That's right. Sometimes things do crystallize in your mind, even as you're speaking, and something hits you that didn't hit you in the previous you know, week of preparation. So it's, it's not as if that's always out of bounds. And so that's where wisdom comes in. Do I go here? Do I not go here? And a wise preacher knows the difference. That's right. How do you gain wisdom? Well, usually that kind of wisdom you gain through trial and error. Unfortunately, experience is often the best teacher. <laughs> Uh, Not that I'm trying to say, go ahead and try it. The next time you preach, go ahead and see whatever spontaneous thought comes to you and see if it works or not. I don't think that's what I'm saying here, but I think this is where in my preaching career over the last 25 years or so, this is where my wife has actually been so helpful. Yeah, she says to you, what were you talking about? Yeah, what were you thinking about? Um, (laughs) Because she knows me better than probably anybody else in that room. She knows my strengths, she knows my weaknesses, and she knows when I'm going off the cuff unnaturally, inappropriately, and perhaps oftentimes... It's not really for the glory of God. It's really for the glory of me. And this is where I think Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, again, is so helpful. He says, we preach not ourselves. And unfortunately, sometimes spontaneity happens because we're thinking more about how am I going to be received? Do people like me? 
Do people accept me? Am I being valued? And those are all, how should I say, insecurities, I think, that if we're honest with ourselves, insecurities that many preachers will face in their career. And we just have to fight that temptation, I think, of allowing insecurities to have its way with us and to trust that what you've prepared that week prayerfully, carefully, thoroughly, and to just do it faithfully as you can. Again, as we said before, that doesn't mean you just go up there regardless of what ideas may come to mind to just ignore that, because sometimes those may be helpful in terms of ideas crystallizing or saying in a slightly different way. Or when you look at your audience, for example, people forget that preaching is not a monologue, but actually a dialogue. Though the audience is not talking back to you, they're actually communicating to you non-verbally through their face, through their body language, and good speakers and preachers are able to assess and discern uh, the communication being given by the audience non-verbally. And as a result, let's say if I say something, maybe a difficult theological idea like election, and I'm trying to explain election and I look at the audience and half the people have furrowed eyebrows and quizzical look on their faces or their arms are crossed and they're looking angry at me. They're communicating something to me. So I don't just keep plowing on as if everybody agrees. Maybe that's when I take a step back and say, let me try that again in different language. Let me summarize what I just said again in this way. And I think there's room for you to pastorally, as you look at your audience and the communication that they're giving to you non-verbally, to go ahead and try it again. We do that with our children. Again, we try to teach our children something, and they look at you and go, Daddy, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> or if it's a teenager, they're not even listening because they're giving you the rolled eyes. They roll their eyes. They whatever. Cr- yeah, whatever, et cetera. And then you adjust, and you have to try to say it in a different way that wasn't perhaps on script. And so again, I think there needs to be openness and wisdom to apply those kinds of things. But at the same time, wisdom also says, trust what you've prepared more than the spontaneous moments. And doesn't Paul embody the inherent difficulty, ambiguity, and skill of wisdom in preaching. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1, 17-25, he criticizes those who presented themselves as wise. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom, 1 Corinthians 1, 22. And in verse 23, he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness, to Gentiles. And so there he sets up a contrast between what he's doing and wisdom. But in 2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 5, he says, I didn't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness. I was in fear, much trembling. Uh, My speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power that you might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's not as if he's against wisdom, but he's against a certain kind of wisdom. Paul's writing in a context in the first century where ancient rhetoric was used for particular purposes, whether in legislative courts to persuade deliberations in a kind of a civic context uh, or in a kind of entertainment way, rhetoric was really the entertainment of the day. They didn't have TV. They didn't have internet. They basically had these professional orators that were able to move people, persuade people, delight people, tickle their ears in such a way so that they would receive the applause ultimately. 
these entertaining speakers. Paul knew all that. He knew that context. He knew that many readers of Scripture, many early Christians of that day, would start comparing preachers to these fancy orators. And Paul understood those oratorical arts and science. He studied it all. If you read some of his speeches, for example, in Acts, you actually see evidences of him using those rhetorical skills and ideas. But at the end of the day, he always prioritized something else. Not that skill set or not that technique or that particular method, though he used those. He always prioritized the content of the gospel, not the communication of the technique. And so not that he didn't consider communication bad. Of course, he was a very good communicator. All of his letters are written communications that are powerful and weighty, true and beautiful. But he always prioritized the content of Jesus and the gospel. And so I think there's something we can learn from that too. As preachers, as we think about our task and especially wisely approaching our task, we must always prioritize the content of the gospel over the communication skill or technique. In the 19th century, One of the most persuasive, successful, outwardly successful preachers was Charles Grandison Finney, and he gave lectures on revival, and he laid out a system whereby if the preacher followed the method that he gave, he could virtually assure certain results. What's wrong with that? There's so many things wrong with that, I'm not sure where to begin, but simply put, it's not the method or the technique that changes lives. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified and faith in him that changes lives. Again, it's the matter of prioritization. I'm not going to say that we shouldn't think about method or we shouldn't think about technique. We shouldn't think about the art and science of design and delivery of sermons. But at the end of the day, the prioritization is always what changes people's dead hearts and makes them come alive. It's the preaching of the gospel, which Paul actually calls foolishness in this world, because the world doesn't understand that. And unfortunately, maybe now I'm equating Finney with foolishness, but in many ways, he got it all wrong. He got it upside down, backwards, whatever you want to say, was he thought that utilizing these techniques will somehow change lives. And maybe they did temporarily in a shallow way, and maybe they people did come forward and said, yes, I want to change. But there was no heart change, which only occurs through the power of the Spirit, through the ministry of the Word. And so if we believe that, we have to preach the gospel, which is the foolishness of the world, but is the wisdom of God. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.